for spending a few extra minutes worshiping and exalting God today. Aren't you glad to be in his presence? Isn't it such a good thing to be able to come together on a Sunday morning? Amen. Amen. As we begin this morning, I'd like to, uh, I'd like to share a little story, some life lesson my wife and I learned early in our marriage. And I will tell you up front that I have permission to tell this story because I asked last night lest I be in trouble at lunchtime this afternoon. So, Rachel and I got married while we were still in college in between my junior and senior year. I was all of 20 and she was 21 and we came back to school for uh, last year of school and we were broke. We had an apartment across the street from the college campus and we did not have very much money at all, which is fine. That's part of life. You learn and grow together. Any other married couple remember being very young and not having any money? Yeah, it's a pretty normal thing, isn't it? So for us, we didn't have much money and we had a very, very tight food budget. And when I say tight, it was $20 a week. So we were, we were trying to eat on $20 a week. Now, granted, it was only two of us. This was 16 years ago, and you can do that. It's, and we were in California, which meant we pretty much ate rice and beans, right? But, but we were on a very, very, very tight budget and pancakes. So we got towards the end of a week, and we were just about out of groceries, and we came home that evening, and Rachel decided to make dinner, and we had been married less than a month, I think. I mean, we had only been married a few weeks at this point. And so she opens the refrigerator and looks in there, and, and there's almost nothing. I mean, there's just a handful of ingredients. And so she decides, I'm going to take these last few eggs, and I'm going to go ahead, and I'm going to make us omelets for dinner. Except we didn't even have enough eggs to make two full omelets. We had three eggs or something like that and there's two of us and she wants to make two omelets so she figured she would stretch the eggs out a little bit by adding some milk to them the challenge was she added too much milk <laughs> got the pan hot now before I go any farther let me say many of you have had my wife's cooking my wife is an excellent cook today she was still <laughs> she was still learning at this time I have permission to share this story. So she adds milk to these eggs, but she adds way too much milk, and now it's super, super thin. You can probably already see where this is going, Rick. So she gets a pan hot, and she pours this liquid mixture into this pan, and it just kind of bubbles, and it keeps bubbling, and it keeps bubbling, and it keeps bubbling, and it keeps bubbling, and it is not cooking, and we are not headed towards omelets at this point. So... Then she thinks, well, maybe I can thicken this up a little bit. Omelets usually have cheese in them, so I'll add cheese. So she looks in the refrigerator, except we don't have any cheese. So she decides to make a substitution, and she realizes we have some cottage cheese. So she takes some cottage cheese and adds it to this mixture of milk and egg, and it continues to bubble and bubble and bubble and it's not really turning into an omelet like she had hoped. So now we have a couple eggs, a lot of milk, and some cottage cheese simmering on the stove. So then she's thinking, this is still not working. I need to thicken this up. 
Omelets usually have some sort of meat in it, so let's add some protein. So she looks in the refrigerator. Again, we're just about out of everything. But we had chicken thighs the day before, and we had a chicken thigh left, like a grilled, it's already cooked, but we've got like a grilled chicken thigh left. So she decides to pull that out and she's gonna dice it up and she adds this to the skillet. So now we have eggs and milk and cottage cheese and a diced chicken thigh. And it is still just kind of bubbling and simmering and it looks more like soup than an omelet and this is not going well. So she, she thinks, I need to flavor this. There's no seasoning in this at this point. What have I got? So we look around, and again, we don't have much. She opens the refrigerator, and she finds ketchup. So she adds ketchup to this mixture. And it continues to kind of bubble and gurgle. And it does not look anything at all like that. So this cooks for way too long. Way, way too long. And eventually it kind of simmers down into something. And she kind of sort of flips it over and sears off this rubbery substance, puts it on a plate, divides it in half, sets two plates. We sit down at the dinner table. Right as we sit down, we pray. We're about to eat. And she goes, oh, I forgot to get something to drink. So she gets up and she leaves the table. And I was going to stop the story here, but she says, I have to tell the rest of it. So she comes back into the dining room. Actually, it's not even a dining room because we have a one-bedroom apartment studio. It's like, you know, here's the kitchen and here's the dining room, okay? So she comes from around the kitchen corner to our little tiny table, and she said, I was just shoveling this in as fast as I could, just furiously putting this into my mouth, not saying a word, not looking at her, staring down at my plate shoveling this something into my mouth as fast as I can. And I'm not making this up. You can ask her after church. I have no idea how you can combine eggs and milk and cottage cheese and chicken thighs and ketchup, and it tastes like tuna fish. But somehow we got to tuna fish. And so this is like this faux tuna fish omelet thing. And I am trying to eat this like a good brand new husband. And she sits down at the table and she takes one bite of this creation and she immediately yells, oh, this is disgusting. Why are you eating this? And I look up and I've already cleared half my plate as fast as I can. And I look at her and I said, well, I just remember that you know, in all the country songs, it talks about eating burnt suppers for the whole first year. And I was just trying to be a good husband. And she's like, throw it away. This is terrible. What are you doing? And I don't even remember what we did afterwards, but we threw it away. We probably had pancakes or cereal or something. We threw it away and we went on and it's become this funny tuna fish omelet story in our marriage that we share every once in a while. The takeaway from this is that substitutions do not always work. Has anybody ever tried to cook something and you were missing an ingredient and you thought, oh, I will just substitute fill in the blank for whatever it was. And by the time you were done, you did not end up where you thought you were going.
That ever happened to you, Rick? Experimenting in a kitchen? All the time, yeah. That's part of learning. Oh, he's not telling me all the time. <laughs> he's like, no, 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 not all the time. <laughs> I'm a better cook than that. <laughs> but it's part of learning to cook. It's part of developing. But substitutions do not always work. They can be very important. But it has to be the right kind of substitution. And when you get the substitution wrong, you're going to end up somewhere that you don't want to be. And I want to take a few moments this morning and talk about the idea of substitutions and sacrifices. We understand that we are a broken people. We understand that we need a Savior. You're here this morning because you love God, because you want to spend time in His presence and in church, but you're also here buried deep inside of all of us is the understanding that I am not as good a person as I want to be. I make mistakes, I fail, I lose my temper at times, I say things I wish I hadn't, sometimes I don't say it but I still think it. I am not as good a person as I wish I was. And somewhere deep inside all of us we understand that we are broken, flawed individuals. And the biblical word for this is sin. We have sin in our life. And if we've been around church for a little while, we also know that sin is very costly. Romans 6.23 tells us that the wages of sin is death. I was reading last night in several translations. Notice, several translations. If you were here last Wednesday, you need more than one hammer, okay? So I was reading several different translations, and it struck me that one of the translations I read, instead of translating it wages, it said for the payoff of sin is death and it had a footnote and I was reading in the footnote and it said the word that's used there originally it talks about something that comes at the end of a transaction so wages works it carries that idea too but it's the idea that you have done something and then at the end of the transaction this is what you receive in return and so the footnote said we purposely translated this payoff to kind of get more of the idea that this is what comes at the end and so the payoff for sin, what you get at the end is death. And none of us, my brothers and sisters, escape that. We are all stuck in a cycle where we're broken, flawed people. And at the end of the equation, our payoff is death. But there's hope for us. And before I get to that, I'm going to let you in on a little medical secret if you didn't know this. Did you know that if you do not have blood, you will die? You're blown away by the depth of my knowledge this morning, aren't you? We see this idea in Scripture, though. When we look back at Leviticus 17.11, it says, For the life of the body is in the blood. And I have given you the blood on the altar to purify you, making you right with the Lord. It is the blood, notice the next phrase, given exchange for a life. It is the blood given in exchange for a life that makes purification possible. Even though we are broken, even though we are flawed, all the way back in the Old Testament, 
under this law of Moses, God had already set up a pattern and an example. And he said, I will let you substitute something for your failure. I will take blood given in a sacrifice in place of your life, and that will make you right with me. But even buried in that, notice the substitution still has to be something of equal or greater value. Because in order to give blood to make a sacrifice, that meant something else had to die because the life is in the blood. And so God set up a covenant with these people and he said, you are broken and you're flawed and you're dirty and I am righteous and holy and clean and I am unique and there is nothing like me. And if I came into your presence in my full power and glory, it would destroy you. But I will make a way for you to come to me but the price for your failure has to be paid. So I'm going to let you substitute something else in order to make you clean, in order to make you holy. And so we set up this system of sacrifices in the Old Testament law of Moses. And it's interesting to me that we read over this, and many of us have read our Bible multiple times, and we understand there's the sacrificial system. But if you slow down and you go back and look at it, there were a lot of animal sacrifices and it happened over and over and over. And I don't know if any of you in this room have ever gone hunting or if any of you were ever a butcher or you've worked in preparation of cleaning animal. When you go to the store, ladies and gentlemen, and you buy that chicken thigh that's already packaged in cellophane and it's been cleaned up and somebody has plucked it and skinned it and dressed it out, that's not how the process starts. When you go buy your steak, that's not how the process starts. Butchering is a messy business. Hunting, and if you clean your own animals, my wife comes from a family of hunters, and you dress out your own animals, you're going to get dirty, and it's bloody. Now, you're going to get food as a result of this, but today, we have the convenience of being a few steps removed from that process. But understand, for these people, for most of the world, even up to today, except for the Western world, butchering an animal whether it's for a sacrifice or butchering an animal to get it ready to eat, is an involved process, and it's a dirty process. And it stinks. And if it's hot outside, it gets sticky. And it's gross. And there's no pleasant way around that. And so God sets up this sacrificial system with a group of people who live in a semi-arid, desert-like climate. And he says, every day you're going to do this multiple times a day. And so they'd bring their animal to the priests in the sacrificial system and they would butcher these animals and they would offer them as a sacrifice. And this went on all day long, every day. And it was a constant, visceral, very visual reminder to everyone that something died so that way you can be made right. Something else shed its blood so you have a chance to be in relationship with me. And this system goes on and on and on, and there are thousands and thousands and thousands, hundreds of thousands, probably millions of animals sacrificed this way by the time we get to Jesus. And this sacrificial system is firmly entrenched in place, and everyone knows something has to die in order for me to be made right. Something else has to lose its blood. And so we get to the New Testament, and we see Jesus come onto the scene. And John does something very interesting in his gospel. 
He records this interaction between John the Baptist and Jesus as John the Baptist's ministry is starting to decline and Jesus' ministry is starting to ascend. And so they're crossing paths. And, and one day Jesus comes down to a river where his cousin John the Baptist is preaching and proclaiming the way of truth and he's trying to prepare the people's hearts for this coming Messiah. And John looks at him, him being Jesus, and look at this interaction. It says, the next day John saw Jesus coming toward him and he said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And this is a very well-known verse to many of us. And John proclaims right at the beginning of Jesus' ministry that he is the Lamb of God. But notice, he says why he's the Lamb of God, to take away the sins of the world. And we're removed enough from a sacrificial system. We're removed enough from a butchering process that it's easy for us to miss this. Because if you Google lamb, this is what you're going to get. <laughs> Behold, the lamb of God. Isn't that adorable? And it's a picture from some county fair that's coming up. And this is what we think of when we see a lamb. And a lamb does look like this. And they are cute, fluffy, little, adorable animals. Wouldn't you want one of these in your backyard for about two hours so your kids could pet it and then you'd be done and give it away? Behold the Lamb of God. But this isn't what John was talking about. This is what John was talking about. It's a sacrifice. This isn't nearly as cute as this, is it? But when he looked at Jesus and he said, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, right at the very beginning of the ministry of Jesus, John was already pointing at him and saying, look, there's the sacrifice. There's the substitution that will take away the sins of the world. And when we think of Jesus we tend to have these kind of images. And yes, Jesus was a man. Probably not that good looking. Because scripture says he was pretty average. And that was intentional. And we've got this image of Jesus. But John wasn't thinking of this kind of lamb. He was thinking of this kind of lamb. And John wasn't thinking about this image of Jesus. He was thinking about this image of Jesus. And so right at the beginning of his ministry, he says, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And John is looking down the road prophetically, and he already knows that this man who's shown up is the same man who in just a few years is going to shed all of his blood. And he's going to die in place of everyone else. And what's amazing to me is everybody's looking for a king and we've talked about this multiple times. And if you're in our small group lessons, Jesus as king was the last lesson in our quarter that just ended. And everybody's looking for the king to return. And they're looking for somebody to come and save them. But they want this person to come and set up their authority. They want this person to come and beat the Romans. They want this person to make their nation grand and wonderful once again. And they're looking for a righteous king. And he shows up. But he shows up with this in mind. He shows up as a sacrifice. He shows up as a substitution. 
And right from the very beginning of his ministry, we see this throughout the Gospel of John, this idea of his baptism. And he talks about his glory, and he gets baptized, and he's proceeding towards his glory. And Jesus was talking about a baptism unto death. He started his public ministry with this picture in mind. And he knew he was marching towards his own bloody, ugly, nasty, sticky death. Because something has to be substituted of equal or greater value in order to pay the price. Some substitutions don't work. If you missed this earlier in my story, don't put cottage cheese in your omelets or grilled chicken thighs. Bad idea. Some substitutions don't work, but some do. And in order to pay the price for something great, you have to put in place something that's of equal or greater value. And in Scripture, I'm reading out of the New Living Translation today, which we often do from this pulpit, which is a great, easy-to-read-aloud translation. But there's another word that we see often that's used in many other translations, and it's this idea of atonement. If you're familiar with that term, atonement. And the idea of atonement is that something is used, literally the word comes from the idea of covering something up. Almost like you're hiding it. You're covering over something and taking its place. An atonement is when something is paid in the sense of a debt. We owe a debt that we cannot repay. And the only way to pay that debt is a sacrifice. The only way to pay that debt is the shedding of blood, but the life is in the blood. And so when you shed the blood, you die. Told you my brilliant observation a few minutes ago. Without blood, you will die. So if the price of being made right, if the payoff for our mistakes is our blood, then the only solution is that the cost of our mistakes is our death. But thanks be to God, the only wise eternal king who we worship so freely today stepped into our picture and he said, I know that you're broken and I know that you have a debt you can never repay and I will pay it for you. I will substitute myself in your place. If you want a big theological fancy term, we call this substitutionary atonement. And if you never remember that, that's okay. It's not important. But the idea is that God steps into our story and he says, I will take your place. I will be the sacrifice. And it's not some cute little adorable lamb of God like this. It's this, I will shed my blood. I will sacrifice myself. I will die so that you don't have to. And so he substitutes himself for us. He sacrifices himself in our place to use older biblical terminology, he is our atonement that makes us right with God. He covers our failures 
so we have a chance to be right with God. And one of the most important, significant things in our story is the fact that our King Eternal came not to stomp on people, not to lay down an iron rod and a fist. And you read the rest of the story. That's coming someday. He will come in righteous judgment at some point. But right now, he comes with an opportunity and he comes with hope. And he comes to tell all of us, I'll pay that price so you don't have to. I will be this sacrifice so you don't have to die. And my gift to you, and that's how scripture words it, as a gift, my gift to you is I will pay your debt. Earlier, I read this scripture out of Romans. The wages of sin is death, Romans 6.23, but that's not the whole verse. The whole verse reads, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And we have this wonderful opportunity to be in a relationship with God where he says, I think you're valuable enough that I will die for you. You are beautiful and precious enough to me that I will take your place. Some substitutions don't work, but this is the greatest substitution in all of the human story because his value is greater than ours. And so he trades himself for something lesser. And he says, you have enough value to me that I will die in your place. I will make atonement for you. I will cover your sin. I will make you right with me by shedding my own blood. And someone here today needs to hear. This is not new to you. This isn't the first time you've heard this message. But I felt the Lord kind of press on me. That sometimes we struggle with this idea that I just made a mistake that's really, really bad. God's not happy with me and he doesn't want me right now. I've done too much. I've wandered too far made too many bad decisions. And that is a lie. The King Eternal died in your place. You have enough value to him, my brothers and sisters, that he was willing to die so you don't have to. And he took on him the weight, the shame, the guilt, of the sins of the entire world so we don't have to live under condemnation. And the good news for us today, the free gift that he extends to all of us over and over and over and over again is that no matter what you've done, no matter how you feel about yourself, no matter what you're struggling with today, he says, you have value to me. He says, I think you're worth it. He said, I love you enough that I will die for you. You haven't gone too far. You haven't done too much that you cannot be made right with me. And the King Eternal chooses to be our sacrifice. And the King Eternal chose to be the Lamb of God. So that way we don't have to die in our sin. So we don't have to die a failure, broken, 
with no hope in the darkness alone. And as you stand with me today, I want to encourage someone here today. I want to remind you that the free gift of God is eternal life. The payoff for our failure is death. But he said, I will make you right. He said, I will pay that debt for you. And no matter how you view yourself today, there's still hope. And God says, if you will bring it to me, because I already paid the cost. You don't have to, but you have to bring it to me. In order to accept this free gift, you have to come to him and you have to let him touch you again. And if you're here and you've never heard this, if you're here and you don't feel like you have much of a relationship with Jesus, you can find a place of repentance where you say, God, I need your help. Listen, this is repentance, not an apology. You say, God, I need your help. And you use your own words, but you talk to God and you say, I need you to help me because I can't do it on my own. And I'm sorry for what I've done. Help me to change. Help me to give this back to you. But here's the thing about repentance. It's not a one-time act. We make that mistake sometimes in Pentecost. We treat it like it's a step program. I repent once. I get baptized in Jesus' name. Then he fills me with the Holy Ghost. Now I'm good. That's not real. That's too simplified. Repentance is a lifestyle. Because even after I come to him, I still make stupid, selfish decisions. Even after I come to him, I still make mistakes that I'm ashamed of. But he says, keep coming. And so whether it's your first time interacting with the Spirit of God, or you've been in this your entire life, it doesn't matter. I want to encourage you today that God says, I value you enough that I will die for you if you will come to me and if you'll let me touch your life. And I want to spend a few minutes in prayer with everyone. And if we can find a place to pray, whether it's in your own pew, whether it's up front, whether you feel comfortable coming down here, however you want to pray. But spend time talking to God today. And you say, create in me a clean heart. God, help me to live a life of gratitude. Help me to live a life in submission to what you're asking of me. Because whatever you ask of me, the cost is not too high. The alternative is for me to die. But you substituted yourself. You sacrificed yourself so I can be right. And if you need encouragement today and you're wrestling in your mind with this idea, I've done too much. I've gone too far. God doesn't want me. I'm here to tell you today that's not true and that's a lie. He loved you enough that he would die for you. And this free gift of eternal life, this free gift that allows you to live forever with him is available to you today if you will choose to accept what he's offering.